the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the Friday edition. We're going to take a look at some of the serious news in the first couple of segments, and then James Blend will join me and we'll look at the lighter side of the news when, uh, when uh, we return from... Well, we're not really returning, but you get the idea. Anyway, in the second hour, we're going to share uh, this week's Christian Outlook. Dr. Albert Moeller will talk with Virginia, uh, rather talk about Virginia Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin's victory, how it now falls to him to forge the future, not only for Virginia, but in some sense for the future of his party. And Virginia uh, Virginia Lieutenant Governor-elect Winsome Sears, the first black woman to be elected to a statewide office, uh, he'll address her... Um, uh, historic rise and how the media has chosen to ignore her because she isn't a Democrat. Georgine, uh, Georgine Rice. <laughs> I'm looking at my own notes here. I had an opportunity to talk with Lois Anderson uh, this week. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Uh, and we'll share that conversation about Portland's uh, bereavement leave for women who've had an abortion. I don't dispute the need for bereavement leave. That makes perfect sense to me, but it seems to run contrary to what the pro-abortion movement has been telling us about, you know, how inconsequential abortion actually is. And we'll finally hear from Bob Lapine. He talks with Colin Hansen of the Gospel Coalition, encouraging churches to uh, turn off the live stream and get back to meeting together regularly. I know a lot of churches are doing both, but the point is he wants to encourage people to go back to church where you're in proximity with one another and in fellowship with one another. So that's coming up in the Christian Outlook second hour of today's program. Taking a look at, oh, before I even do that, I wanted to mention <clears throat> earlier today was the uh, funeral of Colin Powell. Now, I had assumed because it's it's been a little while that they probably already had it and I missed it. I didn't get to see the funeral from the beginning. I saw it somewhere maybe two, uh, a third into it. And uh, it began with his son giving a very emotional account of his relationship with his father and the kind of man he was and how important he was to his family, which I found remarkable given the fact that he was a man of significant influence. He spent most of his life in the military, which meant he, he and his family went wherever the military sent them. And for him to be a central figure in his home, highly respected by his children and grandchildren, it really was very moving. In fact, his son had some difficulty speaking because he was so moved uh, by his uh, his father. He, in fact, described being at his father's side, um, holding his hand when he was called into eternity. Now, the other thing that really impressed me about this funeral was the fact that this was a thoroughly Christian event. It wasn't a fringe Christian event. They made reference to scriptures that aren't typically um, read during a public event for a public figure. It became clear to me that Colin Powell and his family, um, these these are followers of Christ. Uh, the scriptures that were read, the music that was done, the homily that was given, and I'm not sure it was liturgical um, ceremony. I'm not sure if it was Lutheran or Episcopal. I don't know what it was, but this pastor 
He knew what he was talking about. And at one point, after he spent a considerable length of time talking about the character of uh, Colin Powell, the tremendous contribution that he made to our nation, uh, his service in the military and so on, he he made the statement. But, you know, what, what this is really all about, the reason we're really here is because of Jesus Christ. And then he shared the gospel. It was amazing to me. And here I am watching this from my desk in the uh, office here. I see. Uh, three presidents, uh, Bush, Obama, and the Clinton. Well, President Clinton wasn't there, but Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State, was there. And uh, here you're hearing a clear presentation of the gospel. And I'm not suggesting they are unfamiliar with it. I just thought it was such an amazing setting where you have the world leaders assembled there. And they were, rep- oh, the President of the United States was there as well, Joe Biden and his wife. They were all there as well as many others whose names and faces you would recognize. Hearing a clear presentation of the gospel, he unashamedly made reference to scripture and the songs that were chosen and just the way the whole thing was conducted with reverence and acknowledgement of uh, of who God is. And the, the final song by Wintley Phipps, uh, who sang, and I cannot think of the name of the song, but it's the one he's very famous for. He sung it for virtually every president of his adult lifetime. And it was just an amazing ceremony. If you have an opportunity, and oftentimes you can find it somewhere, if you have an opportunity to watch it, I would encourage you to do so. I wished I had taken notes because, man, I want that scripture at my funeral. I want that song. It was just, it was amazing. Uh, You know, I found myself sitting at my desk with my hands lifted up. I'm worshiping while the songs are being sung. I'm brought to tears, not not just because Colin Powell has passed away, but because the goodness and the greatness of God that's being expressed during this service. It was, it was amazing. And, um. I I believe, um, and you know, we don't know, but I believe based on the testimony that was uh, presented that Colin Powell is in the presence of his Lord. Anyway, just thought that was uh, pretty remarkable. But in other news, House Democratic leaders delayed the final vote on the Biden administration's $1.75 trillion reconciliation package, but they vowed to hold a vote on the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill today. Now, it's not yet clear whether or not they have sufficient votes to do that, but that's at least the latest that I've heard. Well, House Speaker Pelosi announced in the uh, a Dear Colleague letter today, this afternoon in Washington, that the House would vote on the infrastructure bill and hold a rule vote to set parameters for debate on the reconciliation package. Now, some members want more clarification or validation of numbers that have been put forth, she said, in the press conference uh, this evening. And we honor that request. Now, that's a huge leap. Well, for her, it would be a leap backward, but I think a a leap forward for the country because having those numbers is going to be important to verify what's being claimed. Well, the delay on a final reconciliation vote came following a reported opposition from moderate House Democrats. And now it's more than just the two. It's not... um, just Manchin and Cinema, five of whom said earlier this week that they would not support the package until the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office reports the bill's true projected cost. And as you know, with the original version, it was uh, speculated that it was going to cost at least double uh, what the number on the bill was. And that same speculation is being informed speculation is being um, put on this version as well. Well, House leadership concluded that a CBO score for the reconciliation package would not be available until after Thanksgiving. So it's not yet clear what the future of that bill will be. However, House progressives have refused to support the bipartisan infrastructure bill without voting on the reconciliation package, which Nancy Pelosi herself early on said she was unwilling to do. This is uh, right after 
the infrastructure bill passed. Well, House Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal suggested its members could continue to wait until the reconciliation package receives a CBO score. If our six colleagues will want to wait for a CBO score, we would agree to give them that time, after which point we can vote on both bills together. So, again, it's not clear that you're going to get either uh, pass before Thanksgiving. Well, at the press conference at the Capitol, the speaker insisted that the large number of progressives would vote to pass the infrastructure bill. Meanwhile, about 20 progressives are willing to vote against the infrastructure bill, according to a source. So, well, there you have it. Now, we're going to need to take a break here in a moment. But when we return, I want to let you know that Portland Mayor um, Wheeler has backtracked on his defund the police rhetoric. He's a little late to the game. I think uh, residents of Portland, of which I am one, have uh, recognized that in large numbers, having um, been the beneficiaries of <laughs> of the violence that uh, has plagued the city and the uh, well, the numbers that are, are have already passed a record for the the city of Portland. We'll get into that in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Portland was ground zero for much of last year's, as uh, Tim Knighton put it, unpleasantness. That's putting it lightly. Not the COVID lockdowns as unpleasant as they have been necessarily. But while most uh, riots settled down in most of the nation, Portland continued to burn night after night, all while the mob shouted things like defund the police. And of course, officials, public officials in the city listened. Well, now, as violent crime grips pretty much every city in the nation, it seems Portland is, well, sounding very, very different. Instead of defunding police, they're not looking to increase their um, their funding. They're now looking, I should say, months removed from protests in the streets and calls to defund or even abolish the Portland Police Bureau. The city is confronted by the stark reality of a staggering increase in crime and violence. I drive to work and it's amazing to me. I drive, you know, down a fairly uh, busy street and see windows boarded up where the glass has been uh, has been uh, shattered. And uh, I, the dry cleaner I uh, frequently freq- uh, I frequently use um, had four windows that were just um, knocked out. This this is what's going on in the area that I live in. Well, in September, the mayor, he proposed providing funding for a retire rehire program, which uh, would incentivize Portland police officers near retirement to stay with the bureau. In addition, Commissioner Mingus Maps uh, said he'll propose adding funding for body worn cameras, expanding the Portland uh, street response program to lighten the police bureau's call for service load and doubling the size of the police bureau's behavioral health unit. This is what uh, Ted Wheeler is proposing. After all, Wheeler was uh, singing a different tune just last year. Now, for some, this is an answer to prayer. To others, it's the beginning of relief uh, from the frustration we've experienced in the city for quite some time. Now, I hear people say, oh, Portland isn't that bad. really depends on where you happen to live. If you've not had thousands of marchers in front of your home, if your neighborhood hasn't been plagued by these kinds of events, and you might think, ah, nothing's going on. I I sit in my, (laughs) and I live in a safe, nice neighborhood I can hear gunshots at some distance, and I wait the next morning to find out what happened. Anyway, this is going on. Well, the mayor had a different uh, thing to say some months ago. Uh, The uh, mayor pledged the city would divert $12 million from the police bureau and other city departments to directly support communities of color who disproportionately suffer from the absence of 
uh, police. Now, if you're talking about police reform and making sure that things are in place to hold individuals accountable, the vast majority of law enforcement officers are are in it to do the right thing, and they're honorable men and women. But for those who step across the line, absolutely, you need some reform. I think, generally speaking, the vast majority of people support that. This defund the police uh, has not worked, and I'm so relieved to hear that uh, the mayor and members of the city council are beginning to recognize that. The mayor really did, I think, during his campaign when he thought, if I just kind of pal around with these guys, they're going to like me, and they turned on (laughs) him in a big way, and the rest, of course, we know. So anyway, that's apparently what the future of Portland might be. People don't want to come here to visit. Conventions are no longer coming here because they don't uh, trust the safety, and a lot of what's happening is near the convention center. So all of that said... There's been a change of heart and again, an answer to prayer and the relief of suffering for or at least frustration for some residents in the city of Portland. Also, Portland announced COVID-19 vaccine requirements for vendors, consultants and contractors. Um, this was uh, this is for people who do in-person work for more than 15 minutes at city indoor facilities. Well, the requirement goes into effect January 3rd, 2022. Now, I'd like to think we'll be much better off in January of 2022. But nonetheless, starting November 8th, vendors, consultants and contractors will have to wear a fit tested K9 or excuse me, KN95 face mask mask until the requirement goes into effect in January. Now, gaining access to them, I don't know if that's going to be a challenge as it was at the beginning of all of this, but approximately 2,500 people will be impacted by this new rule and range from people who work on construction projects to custodial services and equipment supply. Workers have to complete a form on the city's vendor portal by January 3rd to confirm that they've been fully vaccinated or have a medical or religious exemption verified by their employer. We're committed to helping Portland recover from this pandemic by making city work sites as safe safe as possible. That's the city's chief procurement officer. We're also committed to making this policy as simple as possible for local businesses and volunteers who are essential to our city's economic health and vitality, end quote. Well, the requirement only applies to any in-person workers who spend 15 minutes or more in indoor work sites. It doesn't apply to visitors or those who perform work in less than, rather for less than 15 minutes, such as deliveries or pickups at city facilities. Volunteers who spend more than 15 minutes at indoor city facilities will also have to prove they're vaccinated or show proof of a negative COVID test within 72 hours of that activity. Well, U.S. employers hired um, hiring surged uh, in October as the number of new infections caused by the COVID-19 Delta variant slowed and the expiration of extended unemployment benefits moved further in the rearview mirror. Non-farm payrolls increased by 531,000 workers last month as the unemployment rate fell 0.2 percentage points to 4.6 percent, the Labor Department said today. Economists surveyed by Refinitiv uh, were expecting the addition of 450,000 jobs and the unemployment rate uh, to slip to 4.7 percent. The job gains in September were revised up from the prior reading uh, that um, was given. Well, the pace of hiring rebounded in October as COVID-19 restrictions eased and cases declined, says the CEO of Zega Financial. The labor market is not back to pre-COVID-19 levels, but it has staged an impressive comeback over the past 18 months. The labor market also received a boost as more workers sought jobs after the $300 per week uh, per week in supplemental unemployment benefits expired in September.
In related news, governments all across the United States dropped a net total of 73,000 last month with government employees dropping from 21,000. Let's see. 21 million nine hundred and ninety one thousand. Is that right? Anyway, in September to twenty one thousand twenty one. OK. Anyway, it dropped in October, according to the monthly employment report. Well, this decline in employment occurred at every level of government, federal, state and local. Federal government employment declined by three thousand, dropping from uh, two million eight hundred and eighty five thousand in September to Lower than that, state government employed some 25,000 or declined by 25,000 and local government employed uh, employment declined by 45,000. The mandate may have something to do with that, but those are the numbers uh, with regard to government employment. A decline in both state level and local level education jobs helped drive the overall decline in government employment. Employment in state government to education declined by 22,000 and uh in other areas related to and surrounding employment. Let's see, how much time do I have left? I'm not, just just a minute, okay. I don't have time to really start anything. So I'll just mention, um, coming up, James Blend will join me in studio and we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. So I hope you'll enjoy that. And in the second hour, we'll look at the uh, Christian outlook for this week. You'll hear from some of my colleagues across the country as they've uh, conducted interviews of really interesting people. So I hope uh, you will stick around and enjoy that. That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Also want to remind you, daylight saving time. Yeah, we uh, fall back. 2 a.m. Sunday, November 7th. Most of us do it before we go to bed, so we're not either early or late. I guess we gain an hour. So uh, Sunday morning, you're not, you know, where you don't need to be at the wrong time. Anyway, that's coming up this weekend. We'll talk more about that later in the program as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Friday afternoon. We're going to take the remainder of this first hour to take a look at the lighter side of the news. And joining me in that uh, undertaking is James Blen, the producer of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Yo, James. It's, it's nice to be here on a Friday. <laughs> that lacked uh, an air of, I don't know, sincerity. It's Friday. I, I didn't know I needed sincerity on Fridays. It wasn't in the job description. Okay, I'll see if I can add that. Did you know that today is Donut Day, National Donut Day? Oh, I know what you're thinking. No, no, no. Isn't that in June? Well, there are two of them. There are two National Donut Days, and donut lovers are celebrating the second a National Donut Day in the U.S. November 5th is the first, or I should say the second, of two days observed by donut lovers in the U.S. Now, according to HolidayCalendar.com, uh, the first National Donut Day is in June, the second, well, today, in November. The Salvation Army said that Donut Day in June was created in 1938. It honored the Salvation Army donut uh, lassies who served the treats to the soldiers in World War One. So it actually has an historic connection. According to Mental Floss, Food holiday historian John Brian Hopkins believes Lady Home, Ladies Home Journal mentioned the Donut Day in November sometime in the 1930s to mark Veterans Day. So it's all tethered back to the military. Uh, if you want to celebrate the holiday, Krispy Kreme is giving away free chocolate glazed donuts today. So there you have it. I've pretty much given up sugar yeah. uh, on a, a very rare occasion. For example, I um, am going to have full-bodied 
um, pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. I don't want fat free. I don't want low fat. I don't want some kind. I'd want a regular good because that is my favorite meal of all the the menus uh, in America. The Thanksgiving meal is my jam. So I'm going to have pumpkin pie, but I'm not I'm not doing you know cookies, cakes, pies, sugared drinks. Because I was for a period of time, I was actually diabetic because my pancreas wasn't working correctly. And having to do the insulin and everything that goes along with that was enough to kind of get me off sugar. But Thanksgiving, I'm going to have pumpkin pie at Christmas. I will have something, some regular dessert. And for my birthday, I want to have some kind of a regular piece of cake or something. So... No donut for me today. Would you have one for me? I know you have a Krispy Kreme near your home. Yeah, I'm not a big Krispy Kreme person, though. Really? But it's a They're free too donut. Sweet for too, my taste. <laughs> too sweet. Those I are know. two things that don't go together uh, for I me. Know, too I sweet. I mean, I, oh, I could just take a cup of sugar and eat it one granule at a time. Anyway, National Donut Day 2.0. Well, daylight saving time is this weekend. Can you believe it? We're back to that. The tradition of changing our clocks officially began in the U.S. in March of 1918. A friendly reminder, daylight saving time ends at 2 a.m. local time on Sunday, November 7th, which means it's almost time to turn those clocks back. And don't we gain an hour this time when you turn the the clock back? You gain an hour. Now, theoretically, we're going to gain the hour of sleep, but we'll also be losing an hour of evening light through March the 13th, 2022. So it won't be until um, mid-March that we regain a full day's uh, worth of light that we've enjoyed these months. Uh, When it's time to spring forward, that's when we'll get that light back. The tradition of changing clocks officially began in the U.S. on March the 19th, 1918. It was established during World War One as a way of uh, conserving fuel that was needed to uh, uh, fund the war industries and of extending the workday. That's according to the Library of Congress. But it was only temporary. You know, when things come out of Washington, temporary has a whole nother meeting. Um, the law was uh, repealed about a year later, as it should have been, on August the 20th, 1919, as soon as the war was over. However, The sections of the 1918 law, which had established standard time zones for the country, remained in effect. In 1921, Congress readjusted the western boundary of the standard central time zone, shifting parts of Texas and Oklahoma into that zone. Well, the topic of daylight savings resurfaced during World War, you guessed it, too. And on January 20th, 1942, Congress reestablished daylight saving time. More than two decades later... In 1966, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed into law the Uniform Time Act. So Washington even wants to have control over time, uh, declaring daylight saving time a policy of the U.S. and establishing uniform start and end times within standard time zones. There are some holdouts. You know, there are some states that don't observe daylight saving time. But um, the saving time and time zones are regulated by the U.S. Department of Transportation under the Uniform Time Act. It begins every year on the second Sunday of March, starts at 2 a.m. Uh, and, of course, this Sunday, 2 a.m., the 7th of uh, of November, it will end. Well, if a state chooses to observe daylight saving time, it must begin and end on federally mandated dates. So you do have something of an option. The states do. Does anyone change their clocks? Well, no. As I mentioned, there are some holdouts. Hawaii, most of Arizona, a handful of U.S. territories, including American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, do not 
observe daylight saving time. A bill called the Sunshine Protection Act allows Florida to remain on daylight saving time year round. That was passed in the state House and Senate in March. Governor uh, Rick Scott then signed the bill into law. However, Congress still needs to amend existing federal law to allow that change to go into effect. So why does it matter now? We know it started and was restarted in connection with world wars, but there are several reasons why officials believe daylight saving time is beneficial. Now, some say it saves energy because people tend to spend more time outside when it's lighter out. The Department of Transportation claims it also saves lives and prevents traffic injuries because visibility is better. Until, of course, starting Sunday, things are dark longer. However, some believe the process is a hassle, not to mention can uh, change the circadian rhythms of the uh, human body proponents are uh, of scraping uh, rather scrapping you can probably scrape it too but scrapping daylight saving time argue it generally uh, is unnecessary it disturbs sleep patterns uh, and has recently become even more complicated in 1986 congress extended daylight saving time from a six to seven month period and extended it again in 2005 to eight months mid-march to mid-november Congress really gave us a wise compromise in 1966 with six months of standard time. But because of the lobbies of on behalf of daylight saving time, we now spring forward in the middle of winter. That's according to Michael Downing, the author of Spring Forward, the annual madness of daylight saving time. Well, disagreements over the uh, the process, daylight saving. Aren't new. In 1965, before the Uniform Act was passed, 71 major cities in the U.S. with a population of over 100,000 were using daylight saving, uh, while 59 others were not. It was a bit uh, uneven. People do not like the hassle of adjusting their clocks twice a year. The microwave and the oven are the most challenging, but it is uh, necessary. Uh, By the way, someone posted on their Facebook page a rather smug image of someone from the uh, early part of the 20th century and the um, the caption, I will not turn my clocks back. I will then be living one hour in the future. I greet you, people of the past. Your ways are quaint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was. That's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty, pretty good. good. Well, um, a Colorado man set his mom's house on fire trying to clear cobwebs with a blowtorch. Oh, really? Do you need to fill in the blanks on that? He was trying to clear cobwebs with a blowtorch. Has he not heard of a Swiffer? (laughs) Well, just about anything else. Authorities said the man tried to put out the fire for an hour by himself before calling emergency crews. So he compounded his mistake uh, by trying to, for a full hour, put the fire out before he even bothered to call uh, the fire department. The the man was um, arrested for setting his mom's house on fire after using the bloke church. Uh, The sheriff's office said John Charles Streckenbach. He's 39, should have known better. He was arrested on suspicion of first-degree arson, criminal mischief, causing $20,000 to $100,000 in damage, possession of a controlled substance, and violation of a protection order. So this may not have been quite what he claims it to have been. Violation of a protection order? Cobwebs? Blowtorch? I don't know. Well, fire authorities responded to a fire at a home um, north of... Longmont, just before 4.30 p.m., so this is in broad daylight, you know, next week it wouldn't be in broad daylight because it will be plunged into darkness about that time. But fire personnel, upon arriving, could see smoke coming from the roof of the single-story, single-family residence. Investigators say the man acknowledged using the blowtorch to clear the cobwebs in the crawl space under the home. It just gets worse. 
and he tried to put out the fire for an hour by himself before calling emergency crews. Well, the fire was extinguished about an hour after they arrived. No one was injured in the fire, but it caused a lot of damage. And mom's a little put out. That's putting it mildly as her residence is um, severely damaged. We need to take a break, um, mainly because that's what we're told. You need to take a break. And we are dutiful. We do need to take a break. We are dutiful. We will take the break, but we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon as we're taking a look at the lighter side of the news. And yes, I refer to we because James Blend has joined me. Well, Colin and Donna Craig Brown, they were weeding their garden in New Zealand when Colin's hoe uh, struck something huge just beneath the soil's surface. Well, as the couple knelt down and began digging around the object, Colin, he wondered if it was uh, some kind of strange fungal growth, a giant puffball. Well, after after he pried it out from um, uh, under the ground with his garden fork, he scratched away a bit of the skin and tasted it. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. You strike something no. under the surface of the dirt. No. You're not sure what it is. And they do this on the television all the time. The detective goes into something. He looks at something on the ground and he, he tastes it. He puts it on his tongue and tastes it. That is the most ridiculous and unsanitary, unhygienic thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, this guy, he uh, takes the thing that he's dug out of the ground and he tastes it. He wonders what, you know, what on earth it could be, but what it could be. Um, so anyway, he um, discovered it was a potato. Uh, we couldn't believe it, says his wife. It was just huge and not exactly pretty. She describes it uh, as its appearance as more of an ugly mutant look. And I've seen it. And yeah, it does look just like that. But it's quite possibly the largest potato on record. When the couple lugged it into their garage and put it on their um Old set of scales, it weighed in at about 7.9 kilometers, which is 17.4 pounds. Well, that's equal to a couple of sacks of regular potatoes or one small dog, which I wouldn't recommend you touch and then lick your finger either. In the weeks since their unusual find, that was August 30th, the couple's potato has become something of a celebrity around their small farm near Hamilton. And here I am talking about it in Portland, Oregon. These folks are from New Zealand. Uh, They've named the potato Doug, after the way it was unearthed, and Colin even built a small, well, a cart to tow Doug around. We put a hat on him. We put him on Facebook, taking him for a walk, giving him some sunshine. It's all a bit of fun. It's amazing what entertains people, end quote. Well, a more official weigh-in at the local farming store put Doug at 7.8 kilometers, not kilometers, kilograms. Uh, The current Guinness World Record entry for the heaviest potato in 2011 The monster from Britain weighed in at five kilograms. Uh, The couple say they've applied to Guinness to have Doug recognized, and they're waiting to hear back. Guinness didn't uh, reply immediately to confirm that this will be a record, but it does appear to be so. Colin said he doesn't have any secret gardening tips. Usually they throw a bunch of uh, cow manure and straw onto their garden and see what happens. He said they've um, they've been growing cucumbers in that area of their garden before the weeds took over and hadn't planted any potatoes at all. Well, Doug says he has uh, must have been self-sown and quite possibly growing for a couple of years or more. It's a mystery, he says. It's one of nature's little pleasant surprises. But Doug hasn't proved an easy charge to look after. As the couple showed the potato off, it began, well, drying out, losing weight. 
mold started growing on its wounds. It was pretty pungy, I guess he says, referring to the potatoes smell. So Colin cleaned up Doug as best he could and put the potato in the freezer where it remains. But Colin may not be done with Doug yet. An amateur brewer, Colin said he's keen to turn Doug into, well, something else. A liquid of some form. So there you have it. What's the motto? What's the lesson? Don't dig something out of the ground and then put it. it Yeah, and then put put it to your mouth. Just ridiculous. I don't know where his mama was, but she needs to talk to that boy. Just saying. Well, robot food delivery is is, uh, no longer the stuff of science fiction, but you may not see it in your neighborhood anytime soon. Hundreds of little robots, knee-high and able to hold around four large pizzas, are now navigating college campuses and even some city sidewalks in the U.S. and the U.K. and some other places. While robots were being tested in limited number before the coronavirus hit, the companies building them say pandemic-related labor shortages and a growing preference for contactless delivery have accelerated their deployment. We saw demand for robot usage just go through the ceiling. That's what the CEO of Starship Technology says. They recently completed their two millionth delivery. I think demand was always there, but it was brought forward by the pandemic. Now, I know you guys uh, order out and have things delivered. What do you think about this whole robot idea? I mean, it's fine. I, I don't think I live in an area where I'm likely to see one anytime soon. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I've been I've stayed at hotels where in room. Has included a robot, and that was fun. Oh, that does sound fun. And you wouldn't have to worry about the robot drinking your, you know, your Coke before it arrived at no, your home. my Sprite arrived perfectly unharmed and untouched. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, two very good dogs have, uh, have been hailed as amazing for the roles they played in rescuing their owner. When a 71-year-old man collapsed and fell unconscious on Braithwaite uh, Howe in England's Northwest uh, Lake District on Saturday morning, one of the dogs went to find help while the other remained by the owner's side. So you actually need two dogs, apparently. The black Labrador raised the alarm by chasing down and barking at a woman who'd earlier walked by. The hiker followed the Labrador and found its golden retriever companion lying by the unconscious man. While the woman called emergency services, the dog's owner regained consciousness when medics arrived and was taken to the hospital for further checks. Many thanks to the passing uh, walker and the amazing dogs, they added. So dogs really are amazing in that way. They can detect things. And, you know, Lassie was not alone in being someone, uh, in being a dog, rather, who could recognize the need for help. Aw. I'm not getting a dog, though, but I'm just No, saying. nor should you. I think you should compliment a dog when something it's like this well comes done. up. Absolutely. From a distance. Uh, Let's see. A professional illusionist broke a Guinness World Record at a Georgia theme park when he completed 300 straitjacket escapes in eight hours. And that's apparently an accomplishment. Jackson Rain, he took to a stage in Wild Adventures theme park in Valdosta and performed the feat that broke the record. He was aiming to beat the previous Guinness World Record of 193 escapes which was set by James Peters in Britain back in 2003. Rain said he began to study magic and escape artistry when he was 11, and he received his first straight jacket as a Christmas present when he was 17. I'm not sure what to make of that, who gave him the present and why. It will remain a mystery. What we do know is 300 times over a short period of time, he was able to escape the straight jacket. I wonder if he also, in tandem, gets the record for uh, most times putting on a straight jacket in a that period of time. Yeah, not only taking it off, but putting it on. Got to put it back on to take it off again. He might have had assistance in that, so we'll have to check that out.
That's true. Well, a pair of young sisters from Hong Kong earned a Guinness World Record when they amassed a collection of 3,388 different lip balms. Wow. Scarlett Ashley Chang, she's six, uh, told Guinness World Records she and her sister, Kaylin, who's eight, started collecting lip balms when the younger sister was only a toddler and had no idea what was going on. It all started with having dry lips when I was little, Scarlett said. My parents and my grandparents used to put lip balms on my lips every day to keep them moist. At first, they were just plain without any flavors when I was very young. And as I grew older, I started to try out different flavors. The sisters' collection now includes varieties of lip balms from all around the world. Over the last few years, collecting lip balms has become one of their hobbies because because of the way they look, they taste, and they feel. The sisters said they have also started making their own DIY lip balms at home and giving them out as gifts to friends and family. 3,388 lip balms. You know, I probably have that many, too, but I just can't find (laughs) any of them when I need them. You might want to check these sisters in Hong Kong. It's very possible because I feel like I've bought that many. Yeah. But I can never find one. Yeah, especially when you need one. You can find one when you're just, you know, doing something else. Oh, yeah, when I'm looking for a marker, there's the chapstick. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, looking for the chapstick, yeah, not so much. Well, this is sort of an odd story, but I thought it was worth mentioning for moms and dads who have youngsters in the household. A woman blew her nose and out came a, um, a bead. That had been implanted some 20 years earlier. It lived rent-free in her head for 20 years. Well, this Georgia woman was shocked that the um, re- the release <laughs> in her nose was actually a bead that had been lodged there for two decades. A TikTok video documenting the disgusting discovery has racked up some 7.6 million viewers. Do you believe it or do you think it's a hoax? James? It seems a little odd, especially because it's like the first time it's like, hey, this came out of my nose after 20 years. I know. Let's put it on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Not my first thought. Yeah, it wouldn't be mine either. But then again, for some people, TikTok well, find is me just a tissue kinda... would be my first thought. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. And take me to the doctor and make sure I don't have, you know, a wrench or anything else in my nostril. Well, a New York Museum's a Toy Hall of Fame announced the 2021 inductees are American Girl Dolls. Board game Risk and Sand. Okay. Sand is a toy. Sand's kind of been on the scene a while. It's uh, in the Toy Hall of Fame. Anyway, the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester said the inductees were chosen from a field of 12 finalists that also included Battleship, Billiards, Cabbage Patch Kids, the Fisher Price Corn Popper, uh, Mahjong, Masters of the Universe, the Pinata, the Settlers of Catan, and the Toy Fire Engine. Really? And Sand made it? Well, there you have it. The Toy Hall of Fame. It's, it's their sandbox. We just play in it. There you go. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here in a moment. And when we return, The Christian Outlook featuring Dr. Albert Moeller as he talks with the Virginia, or about rather, the Virginia governor's race. We'll hear from Lois Anderson on Portland's bereavement leave for those who have had abortions. And Bob Lapine will talk with Colin Hansen of the Gospel Coalition, encouraging churches to turn off their live stream and go back to uh, meeting together regularly. All of that coming up in the next hour of The Georgine Rice Show. The Christian Outlook. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. 
Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.